Hello, beautiful Soul Confessions listeners, and welcome back to episode two, Broken Family, with me, Tara Lee. I hope you enjoyed the ghost stories on the first episode. There are a few more interesting encounters that have happened since I moved out of the haunted house. I will sprinkle those into my stories from time to time. Today, I'm going to start to tell my story. I will start to bring many of my experiences from the shadows into the light. There are some parts that are difficult to tell, so please bear with me. I have found gifts in difficult places and unexpected places. It is only through this reflection that I have a deeper understanding of my journey. Before I start, I would like to take a moment to acknowledge that at times recollections between individuals of events can and do vary. This is for many reasons, including fading memories or different interpretations taken away from the same event. These stories are not investigative pieces, rather they are about the impression that the event made. The story is based on my recollection of events, honest opinion and how things impacted me. The story is also, at times, based on other individuals or family members' recollection of events and honest opinions. As the name of the podcast suggests, Soul Confessions, there will be some personal and at times difficult subjects raised. This episode contains mental health themes. If at any time you are triggered by any of the stories, please reach out to your local support group. In Australia, Lifeline can be contacted on... 13, 11, 14. Early days. I was born in the southeastern suburbs of Victoria, Australia in 1975. My first home was on a semi-rural property. We lived on 10 acres with cattle and livestock that were raised for the purpose of feeding the family. I remember we had a very large freezer to keep each slaughter. The road was unmade In fact, we only had one made road in town. The local town consisted of a petrol station and general store for small conveniences. We had to drive further for most things we needed. We were relatively isolated. The family home was a two-bedroom plus small sewing room, one bathroom with an open fire for heat in winter and no air conditioning. We were a family of five, Mum, Dad, three daughters, each of the girls born five years apart, of which I was the youngest. So yes, we had a very small house for all of us to occupy by today's standards. But I suppose it was all relative to the time of history and the farming community we lived in. By the time I was three, we moved out to a house that was bigger by one extra bedroom. The house was an upgrade in size and that was about all. We had downgraded to an outside toilet, had prolific condensation which created drips from the roof in winter and a coating of black mould too. My parents were attracted to the property because of the native bushland and space to rebuild a better home in the future. I have very few memories of the first home. My earliest memories really start at the second home, the one with the dreaded outside toilet. I was scared to go out at night. I was always looking for spiders. 
Visits were as fast as possible to the outhouse, as they were often called. On this property, I remember being alone most of the time and entertaining myself. I was comfortable with the solitude. It was all I had really known. I spent my time exploring three acres of native bushland, climbing trees and disappearing for hours in my own imagination, where I looked for fairies under mushrooms or rotted out hollow logs. Only the sound of my mother's voice calling to come home brought me back to reality. Her voice contrasted against the sound of the wind in the trees and the wild bird chatter. Through my adventures, I became keenly interested in plant life. Within a couple of years, so maybe by the age of five or six, I had observed how plants grow, how they sprout roots from certain nodules, how they drop seeds to create the next generation of plant life. I also spent time with one of my beloved aunties who was a keen gardener. She taught me about different plants, who gave them to her and how to propagate them into other plants. My interest soon became a hobby. At home, I covered a section of the backyard in newly established potted plants. Some people wanted to buy them from me, but I wanted to keep them. I had put so much love into their creation and I could not part with them. By the time I was eight years old, mum and dad had bought a cake shop in the nearby town that was about 25 minutes drive away. Mum started working there doing the baking. She was up at 3am and came home at about 4 or 5pm. They were long physical days for her. Dad would also leave for work early, commuting to the Melbourne CBD. This would be about 1.5 hours each way, so three hours commuting a day. He was generally home after dark, sometimes quite late after I was in bed. Having both parents working full-time and having their own business meant that I had to be independent from an early age. I had to organise myself for school, which included making my lunch and getting to and from school by myself each day. They were things I hated doing. I loathed the early independence. The other kids arrived at school, dropped off by a parent with a lovingly prepared lunchbox. The trip to school was by bus. There was one bus for the school run. If you missed it, you were stuck for the day. Some kids might like the sound of that in today's world, but back then, mum, dad and the school were strict. You did not want to be late or absent. There would be accountability and even punishment if you slipped in your duties. The bus was full of high school kids. They were not very nice kids. I did not like the bus because of them. I never complained. I understood that my parents had to work. Being the youngest child, it felt like I was just not growing up fast enough. As the years passed, plans to redevelop the site of the second home did not really go anywhere. We made do with what we had. I started to dream of having a nicer house. I had started to go over to friends' homes for birthday parties or to play after school. The other families had nice, warm, clean and new or newish homes. I wanted one just like they had. Eventually I started to draw house plans of my dream home. 
I created a place for my dreams in my mind. I dared to dream. It was my happy place, away from reality. During our eight years in this house, there were lots of memories. However, there is one memory that is still vivid to this very day. My adult self understands more about this night than my four-year-old self who went through it. The memory haunts me today. It was a sliding doors moment where my life could have gone either way. If you believe in guardian angels, there was one by my side through this experience, without doubt. Like I said, I was about four years old. Dad loved to go to the local football or cricket, depending on the season. He was always at the local Saturday sports. I only saw him play cricket when I was very young, but he did play football too. In the 70s, sport, womanising and drinking culture very much went together. Maybe not too much has changed if current day media is anything to go by. I remember being taken to the cricket or football every Saturday and playing with the other kids. Sometimes my middle sister would go too. I would usually have a pie and coke from the kiosk for lunch and then we would be at the clubhouse late. We often did not go home until after dark and sometimes after bedtime. Dad drank beer for hours after the game, then drove home on the back streets in the days where the wearing of seatbelts was still being promoted and there was less threat of breathalysers to test blood alcohol levels. We were also out of the city and rarely saw a police person. On this particular Saturday night, we were at an away game, so we were at a ground I was not familiar with. As usual, Dad was drinking well into the night. I was tired and had asked, when are we going home? Enough times to be given the keys to the car so I could go and sleep in the back of it. I was with my middle sister, so we went and slept in the back of the car while we waited for Dad to finish drinking with the boys. This was not uncommon at the time, kids sleeping in cars while parents finished up after the game socialising. Sometime later, I'm not sure how long, I needed to go to the toilet. I woke up but was very groggy and disoriented. I remember becoming aware I was awake on the top of a cyclone fence when the wet of my denim jeans woke me up. I had peed myself on top of the fence. I was tired and confused about where I was. The sports ground was unfamiliar. I did not realise I had gotten out of the car and walked away from it. In my sleepy, dazed state, I could see a strip of shops and lights. So I climbed down on that side of the cyclone fence and headed towards the shops. It was late, dark, and I had wet my pants. I was frightened. I was crying. I know this as my mum told me I had tear lines in my dirty face later on. I walked, but I knew I was not allowed to cross the road. The shops with the lights were on the other side of the road, but I could not get to them. I kept walking up and down the street, knowing I should not cross the road without an adult. Then the unthinkable happened. A panel van pulled up on the road next to me. For our listeners who don't know what a panel van is, it's a cross between a car and a truck. 
They are the height of a car and have seats in the front and storage in the back. Many people would sleep in the back of them. In the 70s, these cars would be considered a red flag to women. Tradesmen would also use them, as the storage in the back was lockable for tools and equipment. So a man in a panel van pulled up on the side of the road next to me where I was walking. It was dark. He rolled down his window and asked me if I was lost. I did not know what to do, so I said yes. He asked me where I lived. I knew the name of our road and suburb, so I responded. There were no street numbers in those days. Somehow I made the decision to get in the car. I had few options at this point. He spoke of his girlfriend who knew the area I lived in. At least that offered hope. In some strange way, while in the stranger's car, breaking all the rules your mum tells you, I managed to say no to the lollies he offered me. I was always told never to take lollies from strangers. I also declined a drink from his prima, or juice box, as I did not want to share his straw. All I could think of was that there would be his boy germs on it. The logic of a four-year-old is quite incredible. True to his word, we drove to his girlfriend's house, got her in the car, and she directed us to the road I knew as home. I sat in the middle, between the two of them, on, on a bench seat. I hoped they were vinyl seats. I was sitting there in my pea-soaked pants. Most likely they were, as this was typical of those cars in the 70s. We eventually turned into our long driveway. The man got out of the car and knocked on the door to our house. In the middle of the night, Mum answered the stranger's knock at the door. This is despite not recognising the headlights of the car that just arrived and being home by herself. Remember, we were in a farming community and Dad was not home. The bravery of my mother for deciding to open the door. If the visitor had ill intent, there was no one to cry to for help. Come to think of it, she probably had a frying pan or a rolling pin at arm's length, just in case. I don't think any unwelcome visitors would have got too far with her. Back to the man at the door. After my mother opened the door, he introduced himself as Bubbles. Clearly a nickname, but nevertheless my adult ears hear it with a predatory overtone. Great, I've been sitting in a panel van with a man named Bubbles who has picked me up off the street in one of the toughest parts of the southeastern suburbs even to this day. I thank my guardian angels that Bubbles was a kind man. This man got me home before Dad arrived. Mum never had to experience the panic of a missing child. I remember Mum taking me and cleaning me up. She told me about the tear streaks on my dirty face. Finally, I got into my nice warm bed with dry pants on. Finally, I could rest. I wanted the comfort of my own bed hours ago. Sometime later, Dad arrived home, drunk, and stumbled into the house. Knowing I was safe, Mum asked my drunken father where their daughters were. He said in the car. 
To his knowledge, he had left both of us in the car, which was now parked outside the house on the gravel driveway. We were to find our own way inside and to bed. He had no idea he had come home without me. Mum is a Leo and her heart is that of a lioness. I was one of her cubs and needless to say, you don't want to come between the two. Mum confronted Dad that night about the events. She was beside herself with anger. The thought of harm coming to one of her children, coupled with Dad's inability to understand the gravity of the situation, made her temperature rise to extreme levels. This story is still very painful to retell. She is emotional every time to this day. Dad still has not acknowledged regret for this event. My family and I are forever grateful for this good Samaritan named Bubbles who showed up and delivered me to safety. If you happen to be listening, then thank you. It would have been in the late 70s near the Pines Football Cricket Club in Frankston North. We would love you to drop us a line via the show's email. This incident is one of many that showed Mum carried most of the responsibility for keeping the household together in those days. Her story is one where she grew up not knowing her father. He was absent and she yearned to have that void filled in her life. He died when she was 16 years old. There are no happy memories. The minimal interaction she did have with him broke her heart every time. Part of her mindset in the late 70s was keeping the family together, even if there was poor behaviour from Dad. Dad also looked after the family finances, so Mum had no money of her own. She was unable to seek refuge with her own mother, as other adult children were with Nana. Even if she wanted to leave, how was she to do it? In some ways, women today still find themselves in this situation, although there are better support options. Teenage years. In 1986, we moved to the new but old house featured in episode one, Ghost Stories. We lived there for my teenage years. We moved to another house that my parents saw potential in. I saw an inside toilet. Moving to the suburbs, was quite a culture change. I lost all my friends and had to re-establish myself in late primary school. One benefit was that the school was within walking distance, so no more long bike rides. I only did them a couple of times because it was simply too far. And no more bus rides with mean high school kids. In the late 80s and perhaps early 90s, mum and dad saw each other one day a week. On a Sunday, they did the accounts for the cake store. Mum had worked long hours for six days. Dad was often home late too. On their one day off together, Dad shouted at Mum about paperwork and balancing the figures. The walls of the old house were double and triple brick thick, but not enough to contain the yelling. I hid in my room to stay out of the crossfire. Dad would yell the same things to Mum each Sunday. Mum would inevitably snap and then come and shout at me. Usually something along the lines of helping with chores 
and why I had not done them. Without our eyes, I see she was letting off steam that had accumulated with Dad. Eventually, in the early 90s, the recession started to impact the business and the store was closed. Mum got a job. Dad decided the commute from home to the Melbourne CBD was too much each day, so he rented a small unit on the fringe of the city. He came home on the weekend. Mum and I worked on the weekend. At this stage, both my sisters no longer lived at home. One was married several years prior and the other was travelling indefinitely overseas. The family unit was very weak. There were no family dinners or holidays. There were never any holidays more than an overnight stay within driving distance from home. No nice memories were created, no laughter, no sharing of stories. What sort of family were we? Eventually it managed to get even worse. Dad started yelling at me. I can't even recall what I did. Most likely I had done something naughty or annoying. But nothing to deserve the things he would say. No one deserves to hear the things that he said. At about the age of 15 or 16, he repeatedly threatened to throw me out of the house. He would often say, one day you'll come home and find all of your things on the front lawn. Another favourite was, you will never amount to anything. And the poor bastard that gets you, as in a husband. Being spoken to in this way should be prefaced by some history. From a very young age I was teased. It was what I grew up with on a daily basis. It must have been normalised in my head as there are no clear memories until I was maybe six, seven or eight years old. Other family members remember more clearly the events of the late 70s and beyond. They describe the teasing as cruel, relentless and disturbing. I asked were the other siblings treated this way, wondering if this was just the way Dad related to children. The answer I got was no. It was only you he teased with such severity. This is disturbing to know. As the teasing was so frequent, only the extreme ones stand out. I remember when I was about eight to nine years old, I was in the passenger seat of the car while Dad was driving. I remember being teased to breaking point. He would just not stop, even with my distressed cries. I got to the point where I physically lashed out at him while he was driving. I needed him to stop. The car was knocked out of gear while moving. Dad's driving went off course and I froze. I thought I was in so much trouble for the outburst. Instead, silence and the incident was never mentioned or acknowledged with me. This reaction was confusing to my child self. In my teenage years, I received countless threats of homelessness, soul-destroying verbal abuse and years of teasing. This resulted in my self-worth being shredded and left in pieces on the floor. My home life left me as a shell of a person. Depression reared its head. I withdrew from the world, forgot how to smile or care for others or myself. I did not know what it was at the time. Mental health was not spoken about like it is today. 
I was reduced to a person who could not see a future with herself in it. Some days it was sad to wake up and think there was another day to be lived. Some of Dad's words had crept into my mind as fact. It's hard to keep defending yourself against a constant barrage of abuse. Despite the turmoil we were both in, I knew that my mum loved me with all of her heart. When I was in the depths of my despair, that is what kept me going. Who was this man that treats his child in this way? His behaviour says more about him than me. He has a pattern of exhibiting behaviour of emotional cruelty without empathy. The impact this treatment and absence of loving behaviour had on me was significant. I never thought I was worthy or clever enough to have an office job or anything nice in life. I did not visualise or dream of having a wedding or family of my own. Those were nice things not to dream about. I no longer dared to dream like I once had. Just in case anyone is thinking what your mum was doing while all of this was happening, she has her own story to tell. She may have suffered to a greater extent than me. She was kept busy, distracted and downtrodden. Things like this next story kept her mind in overdrive. I must have been 16 to 17 years old and Dad had just arrived home from a work conference. They required him to be away from home for the week or thereabouts. It must have been a Friday night and we were soon to have a house full of guests for dinner. Mum was cooking and I was helping in the kitchen. It was still daylight and Dad walked in, just home from the week away. He walked in the house, through the back door, through the kitchen where Mum and I were and straight into the bathroom. He did not say anything that I can recall. Maybe there was a muttered hello. There was certainly no hug or kiss for Mum to let her know she was missed over the week. All he did say when he came out of the bathroom was, where's the hand towel? Mum gave him a hand towel and Dad disappeared. At that moment, Mum broke down. She came to me with tears in her eyes and said, I think there's someone else. He's having an affair. He just ignored me. She cried and we hugged. She had to pull it together as people would be arriving soon. I can't remember what I said to calm her down. My head was spinning to be the confidant at this time. Mum must have laid awake at night wondering every time Dad was home late or away for work. Or perhaps she was just too tired to join the dots on his behaviour. How hard it must have been to deal with broken trust. There was another incident in July 93 that proved my father did not care for the welfare of my mum. It was at the time when the Frankston serial killer Paul Denyer was preying on women. On this night, the police did not know who the killer was. The threat of more murders loomed. The incidents were in and around the Frankston train line. I frequently used this station and recall being on high alert. 
ordinarily mum would pick dad up from the station in the early evening. It was walking distance from home, but mum would still go and pick dad up. Dad would phone as he was leaving his Melbourne office and we knew he would arrive in Frankston about an hour later. On this night, I was on the phone. It was a landline with no call waiting or message service. Dad could not get through. He was always furious with me if I was on the phone when he called. But the times were always different, so it was really hard to know. Dad proceeded home on the train and walked from the station to arrive home. A school friend was in the house with me when Dad arrived. We let him know that Mum was waiting for him at the station. She left the house because she thought it was about time he should arrive at the station. I had been on the phone, so we figured we missed the call. Let me ask you a question. What would a normal response be from a husband in this situation? In my opinion, I would expect the husband to get in the second car and drive down to let her know to come home. Make sure she was safe. Something along those lines. That would be normal behaviour for a loving husband towards his wife. Dad's response was the opposite. He refused to go and get mum. I was beside myself with frustration, disbelief and fear for my mother's safety. My friend and I decided to dress in baggy clothes so as to not look like females at this time on the street. We put screwdrivers up our sleeves and walked in the dark to the station to get mum. It was about a 20 to 25 minute walk one way. We arrived to find mum sitting in the car, still waiting for dad. We tapped on the window, got in and let her know what was happening. The cherry on the cake of this situation was that dad was also accepting of two 17-year-olds walking in the dark with a murderer of women on the loose. I still struggle with how my dad thought any of this was acceptable behaviour. By late 94 or early 95, dad left the house as part of commencing divorce proceedings. It was a blessing. From that day, the process of healing and creating a better life could commence. In saying that, there has been ongoing hurt up until recent years. But we will hold that thought for now. When Dad left, pieces of his other life started to unfold. Things we never knew. Odd events were uncovered and confusing correlations made. Confusing as we were being confronted with a reality that there was so much time unaccounted for and perhaps he was not the man we expected him to be. We expected loyal, faithful, hard-working, honest. Even if you don't love someone anymore, there's a right way to do things. The reality is that Dad had been gathering secrets over the years. How many? I don't know. Was there just the one affair he was hiding? When did it start? How long had it been going for? Perhaps some of the answers are hard to know. I feel as though we will never know the depths of the truth. Daddy's not a very open person. He rarely, if ever, talks about himself. I mean the depths of himself. 
the space where you open up and let another human know your deepest thoughts, the self-reflection zone, the vulnerable zone, the human zone, the zone where the magic happens, where humans connect. Maybe he is not capable of entering this zone. Maybe this zone is for another lifetime. Here is a thought-provoking question. Could knowing the whole truth about Dad's secrets bring any benefit to my life? With where I am right now, I think it could bring much hurt and distress. Maybe the answer is that some knowledge allows me to understand that his actions say everything about him and his psychology than me as a child and now adult. The knowledge I have has allowed me to rebuild my confidence, self-belief and self-worth. It helps me function in the world and understand that I am worthy of all the wonderful things that life can bring. The other key thing in my healing has been love. It's amazing what love can do to transform a life. We will explore this theme further in the coming episodes. I have digressed for a moment. We were talking about confusing pieces of the story. You're probably thinking, tell me more about that. So here's just a few of them. Several months after Dad left and the separation had commenced, Mum was going through some recent credit card statements, ones from before the separation started. She noticed some unexpected transactions from an airline, very strange, very expensive too. Dad had a recent trip overseas, he said was for work. So why were there personal charges and why were they so high? Mum did not get clear answers from Dad when she asked, so she ended up calling the airline. It was her name on the credit card, so that enabled her to get some ticket holder information. I'm not sure if there was such a thing as privacy laws back then, but she got what she needed. The ticket holder was a name Mum knew, another woman's name. His female associate from another department at work for many years. So why was she going overseas for the extended stay? Why was it charged to the joint credit card with Mum effectively paying half? Mum confronted Dad. He never admitted to his female friend being the ticket holder. That day we learnt the ease that Dad could lie. We had some evidence and he washed his hands of it without skipping a beat. Then there were only more questions. Eventually I was introduced to the lady who had her name on the ticket. It was probably just over 12 months after the start of the separation. She was renting out one of the properties mum and dad owned. It was the one dad had spent time renovating just before she moved in. Dad was also coincidentally living about 100 metres away at the time. Convenient. The night I met her, she seemed familiar. I felt as though I had met her previously but could not place her. Sometime later, I realised that one Saturday, while Mum was at work, Dad brought her into the marital home. He introduced her as an artist that he knew. She was interested to come and see my art. I was not very good, just studying, learning, creating. It was an excuse for them to spend time together. 
It was a very bold move to bring her into the marital home, wouldn't you say? We had all received gifts that were made by Dad's artist friend for many years. At some point, I noticed the artist had a symbol for all her work. Some of the work was dated too. All of the sudden, dominoes were falling, one after another. One pencil drawing dated back to the early 80s. It was a portrait of Dad. Then there was another piece of artwork with a quote along the lines of You and me daydreaming. From memory, it was a romantic piece with innocent faces inside flowers. In hindsight, I wonder if it was a gift to Dad about their then secret relationship. When I asked Mum about some of the artwork, she told me Dad was always very protective of it. She had to look after it and make sure nothing happened to it. From what I understand, the works still hang in his house today. My elder sister recalls visiting the artist's house in approximately 1980. That made the connection possibly 15 or so years of mum and dad's 30-year marriage. Can we say dad was distracted for much of the marriage? The artist also married another man in this time. However, I'm unsure of the dates. Possibly from some time in the 80s to the early 90s. My elder sister recalls dad being judgmental about this marriage. It seemed odd that dad cared so much about who the artist married. We can wonder at what point the relationship became cheating. At what point there was emotional and or physical connection. We can only speculate. It would be fair to say mum's intuition in the mid-70s that there was another woman would have been spot on. It was before the time of my birth. I don't think we will ever know when the connection started for sure. The title of this podcast is Soul Confessions. So here is a deep dark thought of mine. Something I don't like to admit I have thought about from time to time. I think about the possibility that dad was distracted in the marriage from before the time of my birth. And does that link to his treatment of me? The intense teasing and horrible comments in my teenage years. I was the only sibling treated this way. Dad was also more hesitant to have the third child. Was he planning his exit from the marriage back then? Would it be possible that he was punishing my existence? Is that the root of why our relationship is so poor? At times, he would say some seemingly odd things to mum like, If I left you before the kids grow up, I will have to pay child support. My birth added five years to this timeline. Perhaps he was taking his frustration out on me all along. It seems I would not grow up fast enough, so he threatened for me to be thrown out of home. Would that mean I was no longer a dependent and that he could leave earlier? I'm not sure. I would hate to think that was a motivating factor. He eventually left once I had finished school and around the same time I was legally independent. It was early January 96. We had just had Christmas. 
We've covered so much today. Not all of it will be easy to listen to. It takes a lot of energy for me to tell this story. I feel that this is a great place for us to leave the story for today. It's up until I'm about 20 years old. In episode 3, we'll talk about the next phase of my life, where the healing power of love starts to emerge and I start to find purpose. The rebuilding of me commences. While the story just told has some heavy moments, I want to make a really important point. This is a story of triumph and overcoming circumstances that can seem stacked against us. There is always hope and light if we hold on and search for it. Like the saying goes, there is always a dawn after the darkest night. This is a story of love and how it can radically alter a journey too. We can make the choice not to be defined by our wounds. Instead, if we look in the right places, we might just see what a gift they are. Thank you for listening and I look forward to you joining me for the next part of the story. If you have any questions or stories of your own about overcoming challenges that you would like to share, I would love to hear from you. Please drop me an email at soulconfessionspodcast at hotmail.com. Details in the show's notes. This episode covers many life themes and could impact some listeners. If at any time you are triggered by any of the stories, please reach out to your local support group. In Australia, Lifeline can be contacted on 13 11 14. If you like the podcast and would like to show your support, please subscribe, follow, rate, share or even donate via our Patreon program. All details are in the show's notes. We'd love to keep bringing you more episodes to enjoy. Thanks again for listening and I look forward to you joining me for episode three. Bye for now.